Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 40. This is what God's word says. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Amen. Let's pray together. O Lord, we ask that by your Spirit now you would open our eyes to behold the wonder and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. As he reveals and manifests his glory for us here in this account. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Be our teacher this morning that we might hear your voice. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we come to this next passage in Luke's gospel where we find in verse 40 that after Jesus healed the demon-possessed man in the region of the Gerasenes, which was at the southern end of the Sea of Galilee, he sailed back to an enthusiastic crowd that was waiting for him as the reports about him only spread with increasing fervency and enthusiasm. And on this day, as he arrived back in, in Capernaum, which was the northern end, we are told of this interesting account in which Jesus engages in two healing miracles. Now, that's nothing unusual. It's not as though Jesus uh, were limited to healing only one person per day. But what's noteworthy is how these two healings are arranged and communicated to us. You'll notice that we don't see them in a linear fashion where Jesus meets one individual and then finishes the job there and then moves on to the next individual. But rather, these two healing accounts are arranged in kind of a sandwich, if you will, where Jesus first 
meets Jairus and agrees to heal his daughter. And then while on his way, he encounters this bleeding woman and then heals her. And then the passage concludes with Jesus finally raising Jairus' daughter from the dead who had died while Jesus was on his way. And so this peculiar arrangement is signaling to us that there is a single unified point to be gleaned from these two intertwined healings. Together, they convey one message. Now, if these two miracles were of the same type of healing, for instance, if Jesus had healed one blind man and then he moved on to heal another blind man, then we might understand why they would be lumped together because they would be the same category of healing. But instead, we have here a young girl whose father is a religious leader where she is on the verge of death and then indeed dies. And then we have next a much older woman with chronic uncontrollable bleeding, which is probably uterine hemorrhaging. I mean, they're kind of different. And it seems like they could have been two completely separate accounts, even chapters apart in Luke's gospel. And so why are these two miracles packaged so closely together when they seem to involve two rather different people from different backgrounds with a whole different set of issues? Well, that's the point, isn't it? That no matter who you are, where you're from, how you're living, what is your condition, at the end of the day, we are all in the same desperate need for Jesus and for what only He can give. In other words, every human being is on equal footing when it's all said and done. We are all equally frail and helpless no matter who we are no matter who we think we are no matter who others think we are and jesus is our only help and remedy because notice the dynamics of this passage in the people that are involved we're first introduced to this man named jairus who was as we are told in verse 41 a ruler of the synagogue Now, that meant that he was a man of great influence, education, respect, public esteem, and likely to go along with it, a man of upstanding moral character in the eyes of others. And as the leader of the Jewish synagogue, he would have been in charge of conducting the the weekly service. And so in the Jewish mind, I mean, this man, Jairus, he was a dignified and eminent figure. The whole community recognized him. And he was someone that you would tell your kids to aspire to be like when they grow up. But this man of great honor and esteem, what does he do? He comes falling at Jesus' feet. Now we can't miss what a strange sight this, this would have been. Jairus comes to Jesus with the posture not of a dignified ruler of the synagogue, but as an undignified beggar at the feet of Jesus. Why? Because he's desperate to save his daughter who is dying. Now what's important to observe is how Jairus' posture and his mindset and his state of being is really no different from this woman who is the polar opposite of who he is. Poor and pitiful. 
Because as Jesus agrees to go to Jairus' house to heal his daughter who had not yet died at this point, we are introduced in verse 43 to this woman who has been suffering from this uncontrollable discharge of blood for 12 years. Again, probably uterine hemorrhaging. Now, there are many things implied by this that show just how miserable of a condition she was in in, in just a variety of ways. First is the obvious thing that she's been suffering from this disease and disorder for 12 years. That's a long time to be ailing with the same ailment. And her, her body is not working as it should. And so there's tremendous suffering, not only physically but mentally to go along with it because there's just no hope. But not only that, also observe that along with this physical condition, she was poor. She was a woman in poverty. Not necessarily because she was born into poverty, but as Mark gives us further details of it in his account in Mark chapter 5, he says that she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, but was no better, but in fact, no better, but grew worse. She spent all of her money on doctors, all of her life savings on finding medical care, with nothing to show for it. Apparently, her condition was only exacerbated. And so she was worse physically, and now she was financially in debt, bankrupt, gone. And she was not only poor, but she was alone. According to the Old Testament law in Leviticus 15, she was considered ceremonially unclean because of her discharge of blood. Now, every woman would be considered that for a temporary period of time on a monthly basis, but because of her particular condition, you know what that meant? She was perpetually unclean. This meant that she could not have any marital relations. No husband. She was all alone. But not only was she maritally alone, she was totally alone. Because she was by necessity, because of her perpetual ritual uncleanness, she was an outcast of society. She was ceremonially unclean and therefore no one else could touch her, lest they become unclean as well. So she could not participate in the life of the spiritual community. And so look, here we have a bankrupt, unclean, outcast of society of even the community of the Jewish religion and she's been suffering from this severe chronic disorder and she has no one else in her life she had absolutely nothing her life is miserable and pathetic in every conceivable way you don't want your kids to be like her when they grow up God forbid anything but this and so when she hears that Jesus is in town In her desperation, she pushes through the crowd. And verse 44, she comes up behind him to touch the fringe of his garment, which were the tassels at the the hem of his clothes, which would have been at the bottom. In other words, to, to touch the fringe of his garment, she would have had to be on her knees, falling before Jesus's feet. And we see her do this again, but explicitly stated in verse 47, that when Jesus asks who it was who touched them, she fesses up and comes trembling, falling down before Jesus, just as Jairus did in verse 41. You see, her posture is exactly the same as that of Jairus. 
two very, very different people. Jairus is in the upper echelon of society in the Jewish mind. He's a ruler of the synagogue. And this nameless woman doesn't even belong to society. She can't even enter the synagogue. Jairus is at the top of the totem pole, and she doesn't even belong on the totem pole. She's not even on there. But they are both brought to their knees all the same. Why? Because they've been both brought to a point of desperation as they are confronted with the harsh reality of the fallen human condition. Namely, that everything and everyone is on a downward descent to death. This is what sin has done. As Romans 5.12 says, that sin entered the world and death through sin. It's not only that man is, is guilty and will one day face the spiritual consequences, but that ever since Genesis chapter 3, we have been living in a fractured cosmos, marred by decay and death, which is not how God designed this world to be. And hence, Romans chapter 8, verse 21 says that even creation itself, the inanimate creation, the whole universe, is currently under bondage to corruption. Now, the corruption that Romans 8 is talking about is not moral corruption, not ethical corruption, but actual physical corruption, in that this whole universe is perishing, deteriorating, corroding. Nothing lasts. And isn't this why this woman is suffering the way she is? Because her body is failing her. It is accelerating toward death as blood is spilling out of her. Blood being the very life of the flesh. Her life is oozing out of her as day goes on. She is dying. And so she's desperate and helpless. And then we have Jairus who is watching his daughter die and who indeed dies on this day. I mean, look, this man probably has all of the money that he needs for the best physicians, access to all of the medical resources, acquainted with, with all the other powerful and influential people around him who would be willing to help. But all of that proves meaningless at this point because death makes him powerless. And so even a venerable man is frail, and desperate when faced with the power of death. You see, everybody, every human being is on equal footing in the end. No one is in a more advantageous state. Everyone will one day experience the same consequence of living in a fallen world as fallen sinners, just as both this woman and Jairus experienced. Now, of course, not everyone will suffer the particular disorder that this woman had to suffer for 12 years. But again, at the end of the day, isn't she simply experiencing the decay of her healthy bodily function, which is no less true for us? I mean, for her, it happened more rapidly than for others, perhaps more intensely and specifically. But that fundamental phenomenon of physiological failure is not unique to her. It's what all of us are currently experiencing, young or old, that over time, our bodies break down. I mean, even something so benign as one little white hair on a young man 
which I've been kind of noticing in the mirror these days, which has been a kind of a surprising discovery. But that's all an indication that we live in a perishing world where things don't last forever. Even our own selves, our physical constitution. I mean, you buy flowers from Mother's Day and it's beautiful for the first couple days, but then the petals and the leaves begin to wither. I mean, have you ever thought about what this implies? It means that this world and everything in it is subject to decay and degeneration. And when we notice something so simple and obvious as that, it's actually all of nature testifying to the truth of what Romans tells us, that this world is is ruined by sin and thus death reigns. Death is the governing principle of this cosmos. Everything is converging to the inevitable, inevitable terminal point of death as Jairus' daughter experienced. And again, it's very tragic that she's only 12 years old and she's on the verge of death. And while the details may be unusually tragic, the experience of death itself is not unique to this girl. We are all headed in the same direction. We're all going to die. We're all going to be confronted with the same thing at some point. You know, I distinctly remember several years ago when uh, we were living in Boston, uh, there was a homeless man uh, who would sit by uh, these gates every day, the same place, uh, while on my commute. I used to take the, tr- uh, the subway called the T uh, to work every uh, day. And so I-, I noticed him there in the same place sitting by these gates. And so over time, I got to know him and, and I developed a relationship uh, with him. Uh, his, na- his name was JC, not that JC. I think that JC was probably in, still in diapers when uh, this happened. But uh, he-, he was a kind man, and-, and we had good conversations together. And-, and one day, as I was sharing the gospel with him, I-, I was pressing the point that eternity is before us and that in Christ alone there is eternal life and forgiveness of sins. And, and that this world, everything that we see, this whole, everything, it's so temporal and it's fleeting. And the Bible says that we're, we're but a mist. We're here today and, and gone tomorrow. And so none of this is going to matter in the end. You can't take your riches with you. You can't take your house, your car, your bank account, dog, cat, turtle, whatever you have. You can't, it's all gone. It's all going away. And that's true for everybody. And he said to me, yeah, I know. And all the wealthy, the successful people who have it all, who are in a better place than I, they're all going to end up there just like me. And he pointed behind him to the cemetery whose gates he was leaning against. And I thought, wow, how true that is. We're all going to end up there. From dust we came, and to dust we will return. And in the end, everyone will be brought to their knees Because they will come face to face with the consequences of being a fallen sinner in a fallen world. One's prowess on earth will mean nothing at that point. One's legacy or or reputation or self-confidence will be of no comfort or usefulness. Because death is indiscriminate. And before it, we are all powerless. You see, death is the great equalizer. It, It shows us that No matter how we perceive ourselves to be, no matter what name or position we have made for ourselves, everyone is a beggar in the end. 
everyone will be found in a position of desperate need. Now, some of you this morning have never even thought about the, the, the massive elephant in the room that you will one day die. It doesn't matter if you're old or young. That it is true for all of us. Now, what, what, what do you think it'll be like? How do you feel about it? Do you have Christ as your hope? Now, maybe you live each day pretending like that's not going to happen, and you can think that all you want, but one day death will come knocking on your door, and whether you like it or not, the reality of sin will become an undeniable thing as you experience its effect. And you will stand before God with the incurable, perpetual uncleanness of your sin, which this woman's bodily condition is illustrating for us. What are you going to do? Because there's nothing in this world that can be that remedy. Just like this woman, you can spend all your money on all the physicians, all the promises and to no avail. Nothing on earth can reverse the curse of the fall. No earthly physician can cure your spiritual condition. You need and I need the one and true divine physician, Jesus Christ. You see, the point of all this is not to drag us down to despair as though it were just a message of doom and gloom. But the whole point of this is that even though we rightly and justly all face this universal despair against which we are all helpless and impotent. God has brought to us good news that Jesus is not just a little band-aid to our suffering and eternal despair, but that He alone is the answer that the whole world is desperately searching for. He is the true remedy because he has come to deal with the true disease of sin, the root cause of our fallen condition, the whole reason why this whole universe is a mess in the first place and why we have to be subject to decay. Now notice the details of how this woman is healed. Verse 44 says that she comes up and she she touches his clothing and immediately the blood sees. And and Jesus asked, "Who, who touched me? And Peter, I don't know if he was being sarcastic, he was saying, who isn't touching you? I mean, this is like a mosh pit in here. But Jesus says in verse 46, no, 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 somebody touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. That's a very interesting statement that Jesus says, and, and there are many questions we might have, but we have to be careful to ask the right questions so that we don't get distracted and miss the point. Because first of all, the basic question we have to ask is, Why did Jesus make a big deal about this woman touching his garment? I mean, Peter kind of has a point. Everybody was touching him. And so why does it matter? Jesus says, For I perceive that power has gone out from me. That's why he makes it a big deal. Now, this is sometimes wrongly construed as Jesus being some kind of energy orb or talisman of divine power that needs to be recharged and he just the power sometimes gets discharged that's not what jesus is saying instead he's simply making the point that something of himself has gone out from himself to another in other words this is the language of transfer something has been transferred what is mine has been given to another. Now, why would Jesus say this? Well, always remember 
that Jesus could heal people anyway, anyhow, without any physical contact, didn't need to do anything, just simply by his will. And so when these details are recorded for us, they are meant to teach us something about the gospel as a visual object lesson. And so why would Jesus bring to attention that there's been some kind of a transfer upon this woman's touch? Well, the question is, what did this woman touch such that there was this dramatic transfer that healed her? Well, Luke brings to our attention that it wasn't just any location on Jesus' garments that the woman touched, but it was the fringe of his garment. Now, as mentioned before, this is more literally translated the tassels of his garment. The the tassels that were at the edge of his garment at the hems. Now, again, we we have to ask, well, why these details? Why does Luke go out of his way to mention this? Well, it's because God never does anything by accident. And the best place to look for is first the Old Testament. And so turn with me to the book of Numbers. In Numbers chapter 15. And as you turn here, let me just say that the tassels of of the garment were were not just an arbitrary fashion choice in the New Testament times. But this was rooted in Old Testament law. This attire was actually like a uniform commanded by God for his people, as we see in Numbers chapter 15 at the end of the chapter in verse 37. There we see God commanding. It says in verse 37, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments, which is exactly what we see in Luke chapter 8, referring to that exact same thing to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. Now, again, we should ask why. Was it just aesthetically pleasing to God? No. We see in the next verse that there was a spiritual point in what this is meant to represent. Verse 39, And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and to remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. And so you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to the Lord your God. You see, the Israelites, they wore these tassels, two in the front and two in the back, as a constant reminder of what they were called to do. Perfect obedience. To remember all the commandments of God, not just some, but all of them, and to do all of them wholeheartedly. Now, that's a calling that nobody lived up to. They wore better than they lived because they were fallen sinners, disobedient, with rebellious tendencies. Now, all the Jews of the New Testament wore these tassels, but only Jesus lived up to this outward symbol in perfect correspondence with his life of sinless obedience to God. And you see, by contrast, the the woman's ceaseless hemorrhaging was only an outward representation of her true inward spiritual condition of perpetual uncleanness and impurity of sin. 
But by God's sovereign orchestration, she ended up touching that very part of Jesus' garment that was an outward representation of his inward perfect purity of wholehearted obedience to the law of God. And when she did, then she was healed. Because there was a transfer. Isn't this the gospel? That God ordained this as as an object lesson to show us that true saving faith is trusting in Jesus' perfect righteousness because He has come to live the perfect life that we can never live to save us who are suffering the incurable disease of unrighteousness and sinful guilt. And to all who trust in Jesus' life, live for them, God promises to transfer His righteousness to them who are unrighteous. And only when His righteousness is imputed to us, transferred to our account, is there immediate cleansing of all inward unrighteousness. This is what Jesus has come to do to save us from our sin because that is at the root cause of all our brokenness and pain and death. You see, it's not that Jesus was some, some magical relic to touch. That's not what healed this woman. And in fact, this is why Jesus publicly calls out the woman who touched him as a teaching opportunity. Because when she saw that she couldn't hide herself, she fessed up and came prostrate before Jesus. And verse 48, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And maybe she thought that there was something powerful about Jesus' clothes in and of itself. And she said, look, this is what happened. I touched his clothes and I was healed. And so maybe, maybe there's something about his garments. But then Jesus says, no, 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 daughter. It was your faith that has made you well. Go in peace. In other words, it wasn't the clothes that you touch. It was the person in whom you trusted. You came to me knowing that there was no one else in this world that could help you. You tried looking everywhere. And so in your desperation, in your state of utter need, you put your hope in me. That is what has made you well. Simply trusting Jesus. Trusting that He alone is the hope of undoing the curse of sin. The hope of life in the face of death. And isn't this what we see as Jesus then proceeds to enter Jairus' house to tend to his daughter. That on the way there, we find out in verse 49 that somebody from Jairus' home comes and informs them, I'm sorry, your, your daughter has died. Don't trouble the teacher any longer. And do you see what's implied? Think, she's dead now. There's no more hope. There's no way to reverse this. Death has won, and so don't bother Jesus. There's no point. And I mean, can we blame them for thinking like this? I mean, she's dead. She's gone. But Jesus says in verse 50, Don't be afraid. Only believe and she will be well. Just trust me. And if you just trust me, there is hope for her. And evidently, Jairus did trust Jesus because he still had Jesus come to his house. And when Jesus arrived, he, he took only Peter, John, and James, and the parents. Now, we don't know why exactly, but only that, well, there seems to be a pattern of Peter, John, and James having the privilege of witnessing the most glorious revelations of Christ. For example, they are the only ones invited to witness Jesus' transfiguration later in chapter 9. 
And so as they were about to enter the house, the whole family scene had already been filled with mourning and grieving because again, they knew she had died. There was no heartbeat, no pulse, no response. And Jesus says this most remarkable statement in verse 52. Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. Now, now what did Jesus mean by this? Was she really just sleeping and everyone made a mistake? It was a false uh, medical diagnosis? No. Verse 53 says they laughed at him. They, They mocked him for saying this because it was so ludicrous. Why? Because verse 53, knowing that she was dead. It was clear. It was undeniable. She had died. And the fact that they laughed at Jesus shows how much they knew death to be the end. And so Jesus wasn't saying she is literally asleep, but rather he was showing the hope that there was in him by faith that death is not permanent for those who believe, for those who trust in him. For all who are in Christ, physical death is only Temporary. It's as if, as much as in the eyes of the world, it is the end. But for all who are in Christ, who trusted Him, it's as if we're just sleeping for just a little while until the time comes for us to awake forever at the eternal sunrise, the day of the Lord when Jesus will return and raise us from the grave And just like this girl whose spirit returned to her body, so will it be for us forever. And oh, what this world would give for death to only be temporary. Do you realize that billions of dollars are being poured into research on, I mean, it gets crazy. They're they're trying to preserve our brains and our cognitive existences somehow uh, just extract the, the consciousness of man, which is impossible because that's actually the soul of man. It's not just brain cells. But they're finding some way to try to extract that and upload it to some cloud. It's always a cloud. And then download it back somehow to some man-made, artificial, indestructible body so that we might continue to live forever. They're doing this. What a joke. What a waste of money. Just like the woman. Spending all our money on things that don't work. Because what they're attempting to do is what only God can do. To preserve the soul after death. To bring the spirit of a man into the joy of his presence. And one day reunite it with an imperishable, indestructible body. So that we might live forevermore in real earthly life that is holy, never to die. This is the promise of eternal life in the gospel because Christ has taken death upon himself, which is why again we see him reaching out to take the girl by her hand when she had died, making himself ritually unclean taking the uncleanness of death upon himself so that he might experience and taste death for all, so that by him, 
death might be put to death. This is the promise of 1 Corinthians 15, that he will destroy death once for all, when one day he consummate all that he has accomplished. When he sounds that last trumpet, and all who are dead in Christ will rise, and the immaterial soul will be reunited to the material body that is glorified, indestructible, undiable. And you see, when we rise, when that glorious resurrection happens that we are all waiting for, it will be a real, physical resurrection in new flesh and blood, just like this. Only perfect. And this is why I think this detail is given to us, that when Jesus raised this girl from the dead, it says that Jesus told them that something should be given her to eat. Why? To show that she really rose again in real flesh and blood. And this is the same detail we see later in Luke chapter 24, that when Jesus rose again, he ate to show, listen guys, I am not a ghost. I am real flesh and blood. And this is the bodily resurrection that awaits us. And listen, the world is pining for this. They would do anything to have this. And this is only found in Jesus Christ. And Christian, this is a secured, guaranteed, eternally certain promise for us. It is all ours in Christ. And all the physical healings that Jesus was doing here, they were all signs pointing to the reality. Shadows reflecting the substance that our hope and glory is in the eternal promises of God. And so we would be remiss to fixate so much on this temporal fleeting world that is perishing anyway to the neglect of rejoicing in the eternity that lies ahead of us. And perhaps that's why Jesus charged the parents to not tell anyone what had happened in verse 50. And maybe because he knew how easily people would just be fascinated by the temporal blessing of the healing miracle and miss the point of it all which is to trust Jesus as the only one in whom there is eternal, permanent, lasting hope, which is what all of these signs were pointing to, to cling to His promise, to follow Him in life and death, knowing that the greatest despair of this fallen world, the fear that man can never overcome, is but like a peaceful nap, temporary nap in His presence. And this is the hope and remedy in Christ. It is what everybody wants. And it is what everybody needs. And church, let let this passage remind us that we have and we bear the greatest news. The hope that everyone's looking for. As Paul said, let's not be ashamed of the gospel because it is the very power of God to save sinners who believe. Don't be intimidated by the intellectuals or discouraged by the proud and the powerful, the arrogant, the godless pagans who say, oh, I don't need this. I'm happy just as I am. Truth be told, at the end of the day, they are very afraid. They are all very pitiful and frail souls who are helplessly afraid of what lies ahead who will be brought to their knees in desperation. 
at the face of death and the eternity for which they are unprepared apart from Christ. Everyone is scared. And they're all too scared to admit that they are scared. But because we know this to be true, may we be those who bring them the good news that Jesus says to them, do not fear, only believe, and you will be well. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that despite the harsh reality of our ruined condition and the downward trajectory down to the grave, Lord, you have given us the one and lasting and only hope that is in Christ. We thank you for blessing us with so wonderful a gospel and help us to remember and to know that He is the one for whom every soul longs, every soul needs, but is unwilling to come to Him. Lord, we ask that You would empower us then with prayer and with love to minister the gospel to them and point them to the one in whom alone there is the hope of eternal life. And Lord, may you add more and more sinners to this church and to your church universal as we all together might anticipate that one and glorious day when you will return and death shall truly be no more in a complete and holistic sense as you consummate all of your promises to us. Keep us to that end, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.